Welcome, everybody, to the most empowering show on the radio, the show that proves that you don't have to settle for your life the way that it is, that you can do the things that you love, face your challenges head on, and start down the path of living the life you've always wanted. It's called Growing Bolder, and I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. Right now, we hope to inspire you by letting you listen to the incredible stories of world-renowned experts, best-selling authors, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Yeah, Growing Boulder is more than a radio show, folks. It's also a national TV show, a magazine, and a website, all of which offer hope, inspiration, and possibility for your life. So hang with us for the next hour as we pay a visit today to Gilligan's Island to talk with Mary Ann herself. Then we'll check in with a 90-year-old legend of the Broadway stage, And also, we'll hear how a woman born into poverty is changing the lives of inner-city children with something that's called Estella's Brilliant Bus. Amazing people, inspiring stories. It's time for Growing Boulder. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. It's one of those theme songs that everybody knows, young and old alike, and very impressive when you realize that Gilligan's Island went on the air a half a century ago. Did you know it only ran for three seasons, but once it hit syndication, it has never stopped running? And why should it? And guess what, folks? We have one of the castaways with us now because she has written a fabulous new book that not only takes us back to the days of our youth, but also brings us up to this very moment by asking an interesting question in this day and age. What Would Mary Ann Do? That's the title of the latest book for Mary Ann herself, Miss Dawn Wells. Hey, Dawn, how are you? I am just terrific. How are you guys? We're doing, we're doing great. Congratulations on, on a, a tremendous career, a fabulous new book. Gilligan's Island premiered 50 years ago. How the heck did that happen? And not only are we still talking about it, but everybody still knows the show and knows who you are. That's got to feel great. We have never been off the air since 1964, the longest-running show in television syndication and in 30 languages. Can you imagine? And think of all the money you've made in residuals over the years. (laughs) Don't I wish I'd have made 10 cents. (laughs) Yeah, What was the deal back then, Don? I think it was maybe for one rerun or maybe five or less. I, I think they did. Well, there was no rerun contracts or anything when we went on the air. Wow. And I think it was Gunsmoke, uh, Jim Zarness's agent said, listen, if you're going to run this again, you're going to have to pay somebody. So it started it. And I think we we probably maybe for the first six months, and it never went on anymore. I mean, you, and I know a lot of other shows, you know, like MASH and stuff like that. I'm, I'm quoting. I don't know anything about MASH. But uh, took it to court, and you can't. I mean, there was no contract there. Mr. Howell was very bitter about it. I said, but it didn't exist. You wouldn't want color television if they didn't know what it was. So, I mean, it didn't exist then, and it's a shame. When you see some of the stuff today, they get a million dollars an episode just to film. Yeah, it is amazing how times have changed, but yet Gilligan lives on. And and have you figured it out yet, Dawn? What is it about that show? Why do we still talk about it? Why do we still love it? Well, I think it's because, one thing, it's timeless. No cars, no clothes, no telling you when it was filmed. So you're not looking at something that you think is dated. A kid seven or eight or nine or ten years old thinks it's happening for the first time. I think that's part of it. And I think the other part of it is uh, it was wholesome, of course, but it's seven misfits trying to get along. And that's what the world is today. How many continents all trying to get along? And you take, you know, the millionaire and, and the, the, the bumbling Gilligan and, and all of that coping without any anger, no bullying, with no animosity, everybody trying to pitch in. And I think that's sort of a healthy thing. We wish that it all could be doing that again, kind of. I don't know. And, and it was beautiful to film. We were the first sitcom out of the living room. Right. We were the first sitcom in short shorts. So it kind of broke some uh, standards, so to speak. And and I, I guess it's almost like, you know, you sit and watch The Three Stooges sometimes or Charlie Chaplin sometimes. I thought Gilligan was extremely, his physical comedy was wonderful. It was nonsensical. You couldn't help but say, oh, my gosh, a jungle boy comes on the island and doesn't know where, he's, where he is. I mean, I think you sort of tongue-in-cheek, even, even when it was happening, you know, 30 years ago. You know, it's kind of funny, Don. One change, I think, in society is back when you guys were filming, I'm guessing there were probably a lot more Mary Ann's in real life than there were Ginger's, and now I, I think everything's flipped. 
It has, exactly. And that's one of the reasons I kind of wrote the book. It isn't a goody-two-shoe book at all. It's just saying times have changed. And when we went on the island, the birth control pill wasn't invented. So if you had Marianne on that on all this time and then dropped her in, she was a farm girl raised with good, you know, good morals and good work ethic and so on. Whoa, what would be happening? Now you have mothers and fathers that most of them have to work. You have a couple of marriages with stepchildren, et cetera. The kids go in the room and shut the door and get on the Internet or whatever happens. It's very hard to be a parent today, and it's very hard to be somebody growing up or or a father of a 13-year-old. Even if you're 13 or 14 and you don't want to be part of that Kardashian stuff or or everything, or or you get criticized because you aren't beautiful and all those things. I mean, I think it's very difficult to raise children today. And it's it's it's. I'm very proud of the book because it's kind of it's not tongue in cheek, but it's a light read. I mean, you can flip through it and and find a category like if you don't succeed, fail, fail again. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, it means that just just keep trying. Or if you started a job, finish a job. And what it's going to be like with all the tattoos you're putting on your arm when you're 50 years old, or you're happy that there's a parrot on your chest. You know, I think these things have to be sort of addressed, and kids really aren't doing it. I think it's a great book for Christmas. It's small. Stick it in the Christmas stocking. Read it with your 13-year-old. Read it with your 14-year-old boy. I have a, a godson that at 14, uh, first crush, you know, came out of the bedroom and said to his mother, my girlfriend just sent me a picture of her topless. What do I do? Now, how nice that he came in and confronted his mother about it, and they called the girl's mother. And they had a conversation before that poor girl had that set all over the world. So it, it's much more difficult. Both parents are working. So I, I, because I've met so many fans who, who bring their kids with them, you know, 12, 14, 15, say, I married a Marianne. She's the one I wanted to marry. Not Dawn Wells, but that character that would pitch in with you and help you and, and good sense of humor and kindness and all those things that we forget about. And I think it's a, uh, I'm very proud of it because I really do think it's a message we need without being preachy, you know? Folks, if you haven't figured it out, we are talking with Dawn Wells, who, of course, played Marianne for years on Gilligan's Island. She's written a fabulous new book, really a great concept. It's called What Would Mary Ann Do? And and I guess, Dawn, a perfect segue, you, you know, into a question. You know, guys always say Ginger or Mary Ann. So let me ask you, what would Mary Ann do, Gilligan or the professor? Mr. Howe the or the skipper? Hands down, the, the professor. The professor. <laughs> no question. He was handsome and really off camera. He had the best sense of humor. And we just lost Russell Johnson not long ago, too. Yes, we did almost a year ago. You, you know, Don, I think you sort of underestimate things a little bit. Marianne definitely is a role model in an endearing, timeless kind of a way, but so is Don Wells. I mean, you, you've you always had such a great attitude, and in every interview we've ever seen you in, over the years even, you never had that fight about not wanting to identify with your character. No, you're not the goody-two-shoes that Marianne is, but you've been phenomenal in who you are, and you've helped Mary, us love Marianne even more. That's very sweet of you, and I and I really do think I am. A, I mean, I was I was raised in Reno, Nevada, with prostitution and gambling and divorce by a mother who was a Marianne mother. And I realized, you know, I I didn't run out and get out and get into trouble. Kids are drinking now like they didn't do, but um, we didn't have internet like like then. But I think those values, that moral compass, is now all over the place. You as a parent don't have the power over that internet stuff. And I was raised as a Marianne, and I think I'm an optimist. I really am. I believe in, you know, the best of everything, or you can make it the best it can be. And and I, when I was writing the book, you sort of wonder who you are. I've not spent a lot of hours thinking about it. But when I started talking about what I did, I had my knees dislocate. So I couldn't do any sports. I never got that wonderful thing being part of a team or beating somebody in tennis because of my knees. But I was a debater. Hence, maybe it's one of the reasons I'm in the, that I became an actress. But I, I was sitting as I was writing the book thinking, you know, what is it about debate that fascinates me? Because you look at both sides. You have to prepare both sides of the case. Do you believe in abortion or don't you believe in abortion? And you have to prepare the case on either side because you don't know what you're going to draw when you're starting to debate somebody. And I think I look at that way on life. What's the worst that can happen? What's the other side of this? And I think that's given me a healthy attitude. I mean, these, these people who are all, all about bad wrapping the roles that they got cast, doggone it. I mean, Pernell Roberts was awful with, with – uh, Whatever that is. Bonanza. I mean, you were lucky enough to get a part. Don't you're you're jeopardizing everybody else's jobs. Mm. 
the, the caterer, the, the, the grip, the, the writers, the, the cameramen, all are, are connected with that show. How dare you then get on and say, I hate this show? Don't take it. Give it to another actor. If you don't want to be identified with it, then don't do it. You know, the, the, these legendary, iconic shows, Dawn, of which there's really only a handful, and Gilligan's Island is one of them, that they play incessantly. I think we all have the, the impression that thousands of episodes were shot. How many original episodes of Gilligan's Island were shot, and, and when did they cancel it? What was that like? Well, I think, I think we did 39 episodes a year, which now you're lucky if you get 50. You know, I, we only had two months off. That's very different now. And we weren't in color the first year. And what, did, what was the last question you asked me? Why did they cancel it? Oh, when we were renewed. I mean, we were in the top ten. Nobody would do that anymore. We were renewed for, for uh, fourth year. We were actually going to go to Hawaii and shoot. And this is what I have been told. Now, I can't swear on a stack of Bibles. But Sherwood called us, our producer called us in the middle of May and said, well, we've been dropped. And we said, what? Well, they had a half hour that they needed to fill. They had bought a Dennis Weaver show, and they had a half hour that they needed to fill, and they they couldn't find a show. So they decided to cancel Gunsmoke and put us in after the first half-hour show that they'd sold. And Mr. Paley was president of CBS at the time, and his wife came home from vacation and said, what do you mean you canceled Gunsmoke? That's my favorite show. So he canceled us. Wow. Hey, Don, before we go, uh, we got about 30 seconds left, and I don't want to let you go without talking about this since we are growing bolder. Is, is life in your mid-70s, is, do you, is it good? It's great. It's great. I'm doing, I did a Lion in Winter last summer. Uh, I'm doing a pilot in, uh, in January. I'm, I'm working. I, I, I'm not married. I don't have children. I'm not a grandma. So I love what I do, and, and I'm healthy, and I'm crossing my fingers. I'm going to be Betty White when I grow up. <laughs> well, you know, you're, you're a fabulous Don Wells as it is. The book is called What Would Mary Ann Do? A Guide to Life by the always interesting Don Wells. Please check it out. We could certainly use a little bit of that Mary Ann perspective in the world today. Thanks so much to a, a class act, Don Wells. Up next, he was an ordinary 14-year-old. How being diagnosed with cancer helped him become extraordinary. Next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Our partners at Florida Blue Medicare, providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID-19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingboulder.com slash covid Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. You know, Bill, I love this segment. Time now, folks, for our surviving and thriving feature. With the right support, the right attitude, it is possible to not just survive life's greatest challenges, but to actually thrive. And, Mark, this week it's about a young man who was diagnosed with cancer, what he saw while in the hospital, and what he decided to do about it. These are what childhood memories should be. A brother and a sister sharing adventures, making discoveries, experiencing the world. But life doesn't always work that way. Benji Watson was about to have a whole different set of memories, memories that would change him forever. One morning I woke up and I was just feeling awful, and my parents took me to the ER, and that's when we found out that it was cancer. The attending physician, the ER doctor, comes out, pulls us out of the room and says, you know, we're 99% sure your son has cancer. He has a mass the size of a grapefruit and in his like, chest. Excuse me. Benji had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I was surprised. I wasn't really, I wasn't really feeling anything at the moment. I was just in disbelief and couldn't really understand what was going on. His pediatric oncologist, Fouad Hajar, knew Benji was in trouble. He presented with a large chest mass, so that alone is pretty significant because it can give you that feeling of choking. It can, uh, and I, as I recall, he wasn't able even to lay down. He was always trying to sit up at the time. 
it was difficult for him to breathe, so we had to make the diagnosis quickly. I mean, we were all like devastated. And he, you know, well, I remember the first thing him saying, well, he said, I'm gonna be a cancer survivor. That was his first words out of his mouth. We, when we said, we sat there with him, you got cancer? He goes, well, then I'm gonna be a cancer survivor. He was the strongest of all of us, without a doubt. The pain is so raw, the tears still flow. But if you spend any time around the Watson family, you quickly learn that they are fighters. Something else, something that turned out to be extremely effective in their fight against cancer, they pulled together and focused all their time and energy on being there for Benji. What does it feel like to be that kid, you know, laying in that hospital? Makes you feel you're all alone. It's like no one, no one understands what you're going through. And, but like you have people there with you, it really helps. It makes you feel like you're, you're going to be okay. It was then that Benji turned his attention away from himself and towards other patients. What did you see? What did you notice? Well, I just had a overwhelming amount of support from all my friends and family in school. And any given day I had 30 visitors on the floor and there was at any time hundreds of children being treated for the same thing I had but put together they didn't have half the amount of people visiting them that I had and I just thought that wasn't okay. Benji saw that many were alone. Not because nobody cared, but because their parents couldn't be there. Most have to work to pay the bills. They still have to attend to their other children and other responsibilities. Many have no choice, even though children need their parents to help them fight. Having the support around you makes things a lot easier. You can tolerate chemotherapy better. You, you, you feel better. You can ignore the little things like a little headaches or a little pain, a little needle stick here and there. But if you don't have anybody around you, you're alone. It's not, a, not an easy process. Benji made a vow that when he got healthy, he'd come back and do something to make a difference. Hey. Hey. How are you doing, Benji? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you again. Mm -hmm. Looking sharp. Thank you. I really saw that, hey, if you have the ability to do something, you have, like, an obligation to help people. And, like, even if you're only one person, one person can make a difference. It all starts with the tiniest little drop and it ripples out from there. Even if you're 14 and in the hospital fighting cancer yourself. So he started the Benji Watson Cancer Foundation and dedicated himself to holding fundraising events to help allow parents to be right by their child's side by covering some critical expenses. The gas cards, the food cards, the electric bills, the rent bills, those are items the insurance companies don't cover. I mean, that's the biggest need. I mean, we get, you know, three, four, five requests a week. This foundation is, is something that you don't see every day. People coming out of this kind of experience and creating uh, that kind of powerful movement that would help many other families, hundreds of them. In just the first few years, Benji's foundation has raised over $200,000. It's helped hundreds of families, all because of the need we all have for support, even doctors. But as an oncologist, you need everybody else that's around you. You need the surgeon, you need the pathologist, you need the respiratory therapist, you need the intensivist, you need the child life. You've seen these stories before, you've heard it already from Benji Watson. You need a, a whole team of people around you. And, and I have that team here, I'm blessed to have that team. You're very emotional yeah. still about telling your story. Where, where is that coming from, what, what is that? It's not really a sadness, it's more of a happiness that I have so many wonderful people in my life that are willing to help me. Just all the memories of constantly being with people, and people always being there for me. So Ben, what do you want to do now? You're, you're getting ready to go to college. What do you want to do with your life? Uh, I hope to grow my foundation to get it as big as I can possibly get it and just continue to help as many people as we can. This, you think, now is going to be your life's calling? Mm -hmm. Certainly is going to be involved in my life for a long day, a long way to go.
What an amazing young man, and good for Benji Watson for trying to make a difference. If you'd like to learn more, just go to bensvoice.org. Life sure can be easier when you know exactly what your calling is. Some people just know what they want to do and focus on nothing else. Yeah, they're the lucky ones. But what do you do when you're just not sure, when you like a lot of different things, but nothing particularly jumps out at you? Well, here's something we think might help. Hi, I'm Gary McKechnie, a former ad copywriter who decided to start growing bolder. Now I'm a best-selling, award-winning author, humorist, and America's backroads travel expert. My mom had passed away in 1989, and I was just drifting and couldn't nail down what I wanted to do. About eight months later, on New Year's Eve, as a matter of fact, a friend who I felt was very successful, he got the full force of my wrath. I just laid into this guy about all of the things he had accomplished. So he asked me what I wanted to do, and I rattled off a few things. I said, oh, I want to write a movie, be on Saturday Night Live, I want to get a PhD. And then he said, well, what have I done to accomplish any of that? I hadn't done anything, actually. And so my excuse was I wanted to do so many things, I never moved forward on anything. So we said, look, if you had a million dollars in the bank and woke up tomorrow, you didn't have to worry about work or having a career, what would you do? And all of a sudden, I was able to take money and ambition out of the equation. I said, I would travel and I would write. He said, that was it. That was my passion. Aside from any other consideration, that's what I really wanted to do. And he was right. I did. I I became a travel writer. I was writing articles. I wrote the best-selling motorcycle guidebook in America. I've written two books for National Geographic, and I leveraged that to speak on ships, the Cunard's Queen Mary II and Queen Victoria and on the Seaborne Sojourn. And that was a great lesson. If you can determine what you really want to do, everything else is just noise. Up next, how a woman raised in poverty is changing lives with a brilliant bus. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. You are listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Mark. That's Bill. And this is the program, folks, where we get guests to come on and talk about how they have changed their lives and ended up making a difference in the lives of others. And our next guest did it without a lot of money, without any powerful contacts, and really, Bill, without much help at all. She is amazing. She spent 50 years as a teacher of kids and adults, too. She's worked with the mentally challenged, the underprivileged, even abused kids. Well, she retired, but the need was so great, you know, what she did? She came back to help some more. And then she had this big idea, so important, she sunk all of her retirement money into making it a reality. The result? Something amazing called Estrella's Brilliant Bus. Let's say hi to Estella Pye from. Hey, Estella. Hi, how are you this morning? Oh, we're awesome, and we're anxious to hear about the Brilliant Bus. What is that? The Brilliant Bus is a mobile learning center that i built from scratch uh, with an idea, and it's designed to take technology into the underserved neighborhoods. You know, and aren't you something great for doing this, Estella? Because, I mean, you're in retirement. Aren't you supposed to be sitting on the couch eating pork rinds and drinking a hot toddy? Well, there's a saying that's, that, that says, if you enjoy what you're doing, you never worked a day in your life. So I'm having as much fun as those people who are just eating the pork rinds and and, and having a cup of tea. (laughs) You know what else we think is amazing about you, Estella, is that your whole life is about helping others, despite the fact that you were raised with practically nothing. Nobody would blame you if you were expecting people to help you, but you've done the opposite. Well, there's a saying, another saying that says it takes a village to raise a child. 
um, that experience in the project where people help each other. I think that experience that goes way back to when I was a girl helped transform me into the person I am today. You know, we thoroughly enjoy and get a feeling of gratitude. I mean, um, it's just a special feeling that you get from being able to help people that need help. And we target the underserved communities as our target population to provide service. Folks, are you getting this? This is Estella Pifrom, who in retirement wanted to make a difference with underprivileged, underserved children. So she created this mobile learning center called Estella's Brilliant Bus. And Estella, as Bill noted, you didn't really have much. So how did you put this together? How were you able to marshal uh, the resources to, to, to make a difference? Well, first of all, I started with an idea. And my dad made us think that if you were willing to work out something very hard, um, and work through it, plan well, you can make it happen, and that failure was not an option. So what I did is I sat down and came up with a five-year plan, way that I could make it work, make it happen, and then I put that plan into action. You know, uh, you were in, spent so many years in the public school system. What are they doing wrong there that, that your bus is doing right? I won't say that they're doing so much wrong, but I think I'm doing a lot of so much right. And that is, uh, I think one thing that I could do perhaps as well or better than the public school system, and that is every kid that gets on my bus, I can personalize their learning activities. It is all geared toward individual um, age and grade level appropriate activities. And because um, the school system has a class size that they have to be concerned about, uh, it may take them a little bit longer to be able to personalize everything and be able to do that every session. Estella is teaching us that you don't need a lot to make a big difference. And I think she's also teaching us that you're never too old to make a difference. Estella, can I ask you how old you are? I will be 78. December 7th, next month. 78, and we can hear the lovely sound of children in the background. Are those some of your relatives, or are you working with kids today? Well, I'm working at, at home today in my office, and the baby's mother is sick. I mean, the babies have been sick, and the mother has been out. All of them had viruses, and um, since then she's used all of her days, I'm working and I'm babysitting. Estella, that's incredible. While Mark brought up age, let's stay on that topic for just a second. Most people want to help but feel they're too old to step back in and make a difference. What are your thoughts on age? I think you are never too old to learn. And uh, I didn't even get interested in technology until I was 71. And I, again, back to what my dad said, is that um, if you want to do something, you set your heart at it, you can do it. You're never too old to learn. So technology is the thing of today. We're in the technology age. So if you really want to, to learn and get involved with all of the things that you need to do, you best better learn something about technology. So for me, I'm excited about it because I've always liked to put things together. I like innovative things. Um, when I was growing up, and even through my adult years, my kids call me the gadget lady because I'm always looking at new ways of doing things and putting things together and making them work. So this is exciting it for me. Estella, you did this to make a difference, not to make a splash, but son of a gun, you are making a splash. CNN featured you. Oprah loves you. Your story is getting coverage all over the world. How does that feel? It feels wonderful to know that. I am making a difference, and I feel good about it because people from all over the world contact me and give me congratulations, uh, although that's not what I'm working and doing this for. But it helps you get over the, the idea when people come to you and say, well, people don't appreciate what you're doing. You're doing all of that for nothing. I don't listen to them because I know I'm making a difference. And just think about that, folks. If Estella can do what she is doing, 
imagine if we had an army of Estellas out there who care enough about the kids to forego their retirement, to step in, try to make a difference, to get involved in the lives of children. If you were ever wondering, can one person make a difference, Estella is proof that one person can. For more information, or even just to help out, just check out Estella's Brilliant Bus. What an inspiring woman. Thanks so much for everything you do. Up next, you saw his special on PBS. Now more on the six innovations that change the world. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Mark Middleton and Bill Schaefer here on Growing Boulder. And Bill, if I may, a question for you. Sure. And anybody else out there that's listening that would like to weigh in, name what you think some of the innovations that actually made the modern world are. What would you come up with? What's the most important? Jeez, uh, okay, the, the Internet for sure. What, I guess... You know, the automobile, electricity, the airplane, and the miniskirt? <laughs> I can't believe it. What? That I got them all right? Uh, actually, you didn't get any of them. <laughs> uh, uh, and I don't think I would either because I would have thrown in GPS. I'm a big fan yeah. of GPS. But let, let's put it this way. Don't feel bad because I think probably everybody out there missed him. Uh, do you know who Stephen Johnson is? Stephen Johnson, oh yeah. He is a writer, a columnist, a media theorist, a best-selling author of eight books, all of which will pretty much blow your mind, especially the latest. So interesting that it's also a six-part special on PBS. The title, How We Got to Now, Six Innovations That Made the Modern World. Can't wait to find out what he thinks they are. Let's welcome Stephen Johnson. Hey, Stephen, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys? Uh, very, very well. I think Bill's list, the, the things he came <laughs> with, or probably uh, came up with, are probably what everybody else out there was thinking. But uh, your list is entirely different. How did you pick yours? Well, what, what I wanted to do with this list, and, and really was kind of a group effort because we were doing this in concert with the, with the PBS series, um, was was to find objects that are crucial to everyday life and and our standards of living and our existence that don't seem like technology anymore because they've kind of we're so accustomed to them we, you know so gps is a, you know the internet we think of those now as innovations because they're kind of new um but we are immensely dependent on on things like transparent glass um for all these different reasons we can get into um on, or artificial cold and various forms of refrigeration and air conditioning um, or, or artificial light, um, and we, but we're so used to them that we don't think about it anymore. So we wanted to kind of do a different kind of history where we would take these everyday things and say, listen, behind this object, behind a glass of clean drinking water, there is a whole you know thousand-year history of creativity and innovation and problem-solving and also kind of craziness because you have to be kind of a little bit insane to invent some of these things that that we all benefit from, but we don't really celebrate that history as much as we should. And we'll talk about the six items that you've chosen, but one of the really interesting things is that your point of view is that sometimes the more technological advances we make, the more they're hidden from us. What's that about? Well, look, think about GPS. So, um, you know, people have already gotten completely dependent on GPS and, and, you know, you now nobody has any idea where they are if their phone runs out of battery, you know, and they can't get anywhere. Um, but that technology, you know, I think most people understand that it vaguely involves satellites and things like that, and that it used to belong to the military. But the the the, the crucial technology behind GPS is is timekeeping. GPS is all about atomic clocks that are accurate to a nanosecond. And basically, what happens with GPS is that your phone or whatever your device is picks up um, these three signals, at least three, from satellites overhead that are just reporting what time it is. 
and it's time down to you know a billionth of a second. That's how accurate it is. And because each satellite is a slightly different distance from you, when you when you receive these timestamps from these satellites, they're slightly different. It's like 8:54 and 36 seconds point zero zero nine six six five seven seven eight, and the other one is point seven nine, and the other one is point seven six, and that's because it takes a certain amount of time for the signal to reach your phone. And so it can calculate the distance that your phone is from each of those satellites because the timekeeping is so accurate. And that's how it's able to tell you where you are down to the level of like a meter. I mean, it's, it's incredibly accurate geographically. But we don't think about clocks as being central to knowing where we are geographically, but, but that's the way it works. Can you imagine this guy at a cocktail party? Uh, this is this is <laughs> very boring. I'm this sorry. is uh, this is Stephen Johnson, folks, who has written a fabulous book, "How We Got to Now." He talks about six innovations, and we do want to get to those. But but if I'm hearing you right, you know, we're getting distracted by the fruit and not really the seed. In other words, you say that the issue of race relations sprang out of the invention of the radio, and that big box stores actually are the result of the invention of the laser. How so? Well, the first thing that happens with um, with radio, is radio uh, it, as radio becomes a mass medium in in the early 20s, and and people all across the nation kind of tune in um, to to music for the first time. One of the first things that happens uh, is that jazz becomes a mainstream music in the United States, and it was really just limited to these you know kind of Mississippi Delta, New York, and Chicago, and a few other small places. Um, it was a very it was a completely underground music. And radio made it um, a, a national thing, and for the first time, you had um, you had African Americans who were driving the culture in this way, driving a new sound. You had white Americans listening to African American music, and and you had um, hosts of shows. Duke Ellington, uh, Louis Armstrong had their own shows on radio, kind of live from the Cotton Club, all that kind of stuff, and so. It, it was really, you know, if you go back and look at the history of the civil rights movement, and Martin Luther King gave a wonderful speech about this later later on, is that jazz was one of the first kind of emissaries um, where these two cultures, white America and black America, began to kind of share a, a language, a cultural kind of language, and where the African-American side was actually producing it. Um, and so, and without radio, that would have been, it would have been much harder for that to happen. All right, um, we, jazz we can... was wonderfully suited for early radio. It kind of punched through the, the kind of, you know, kind of limited bandwidth of, uh, of early radio better than, say, classical or opera would have, would have done. Um, so it, it was a big part of that story. So now, Stephen, we're kind of getting to how you're approaching this. So let's go to the six innovations that made the modern world. You say they are, you ready, folks? Glass, cold, sound, clean, Time and light. Those, those are those are choices. I don't think any of us would have picked. Which which ones of those surprised you the most? I, I guess I would say glass, um, because we think of we think we think of glass as um, you know windows and you know a drinking glass, uh, not such a big deal. Um, but if if you could if you could kind of wave a magic wand and eliminate all glass from human society. Um, you would you would not only eliminate windows and windshields and things like that and glass, you know the glass buildings and skyscrapers we have now, um, but you would eliminate spectacles. Huge part of the population wouldn't be able to read. You would eliminate um, telescopes and microscopes and all the scientific understanding and health breakthroughs that came out of being able to see very distant things, very small things. Every lens, every camera lens, every television, every film camera. Um, every fiber optic cable, which is made out of glass fibers, so the internet would disappear, your iPhone screen would disappear. I mean, the world would collapse without so, glass. So again, Stephen, um, it's the inv- it's the inventions behind the inventions that, that you're pointing out, and that's what makes this book so fascinating. Before we go, I want to ask you one more question: What do you see basically as as the takeaway for all of us? What can we learn from those six innovations as, as a whole that, that will move us forward in the way we think? Well, so many of the people that we profile are kind of ordinary folks. They're like not, it's not big corporate R&D labs. It's kind of these amateurs and tinkerers. And so I, I hope that it kind of inspires. And I think that particularly the show is a really fun thing to watch as a family with like an 11-year-old can really get it, I think. And I hope it inspires a kind of a new generation of folks to go out and innovate not just starting some new, you know, website, social media company in Silicon Valley, but solving the, the kind of big problems that we have now that, you know, people solved in the past. 
Steve, you're a fascinating guy. I love the way you make us think. You make us take a look at ordinary things and think of them in a completely different way. The book is called How We Got to Now. And as he said, be sure to check out the six-part PBS special as well. Our thanks to a guy guaranteed to get your creativity flowing, Stephen Johnson. Up next, a 90-year-old Broadway TV and movie legend, Theodore Bickel, is coming up on Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingboulder.com slash podcasts. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. If I were a rich man, all day long I'd biddy biddy bum. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to. Never ever gets old. What a wonderful, talented, brilliant, giving, and timeless performer you're about to hear from. And yes, he is a rich man, but in all the right ways. This is Growing Bolder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And our next guest is a very special human who certainly has made a difference. He is a distinguished actor on stage known far and wide as Tevya in. And Fiddler on the Roof. He's had remarkable television roles in shows like Falcon Crest, Murder, She Wrote, and Star Trek Next Generation. And how about movies? Well, he has been in some of the best ever. African Queen with Bogey, My Fair Lady, and The Defiant Ones, in which he was nominated for an Oscar. And the best news of all, folks, he is now in his 90s, still working, still active, still making the world a better place. Let's welcome the living legend himself, Mr. Theodore Bacal. Hey, Theodore, how are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you very much. Can I call you Theo? Do your friends call you Theo or Mr. Bacal? Theo, I appreciate that. First of all, we, we mentioned you're 90. And man, man, we want to celebrate that because you are still getting it done. How does it feel to be you and be 90? How does it feel to be 90? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I get up. I look in the newspaper, and if my... And a name is not in the obituaries. I have breakfast. <laughs> you know what's great? You first wrote your autobiography called Theo about 20 years ago You when you were just a kid. You were 70. Instead of slowing down, you've been so active that you've had to keep adding chapters to your book. The most recent one has just come out. So, you've, folks, you've got to run out and get the book Theo. Isn't it something, sir, that so much has happened since you first wrote the book? Indeed, I have the book. I have, I have a film also called Theodore Bikel in, in the Shoes of Sholem Aleichem, which has begun to play at uh, festivals all over. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I'm a little slower, but I don't stop. And I think that must be the key. And speaking of not stopping, you know, you were a major player in the folk music scene in the 50s and 60s. You co-founded the Newport Folk Festival. What was it about that era of folk music, Theo, that drew you to it so, so strongly? Well, you know, I've, I've always played folk music. I've, I've done it uh, for my own amusement and for that of my friends and my family. Uh, when I came to America... All of a sudden, I found myself. America is a strange place because they they won't, will not tolerate you doing anything well without uh, forcing you to accept money for it. <laughs> and so I had an, an additional career in my hands. All of a sudden, and, but the the career aspect was secondary to me. The, the music was important to me, and so Newport was a, um, a natural outcropping of that, because Pete Seeger, uh, George Wien, and I decided that because the youth of, of, of the time, at the time, was so fired up uh, with folk music, which tied in with being de- dedicated to liberal causes, freedoms, peace, um, 
that we decided we uh, we owed to the folk field a, a payback because we learned the music from people, uh, folk singers in the field, who really were poor and were, just sang, and we learned from them. Uh, we felt that we owed them a payback, and so we we created Newport made a lot of money, and we we gave that all back. Well, not only did you make a contribution in music, you've also done it in a theater after 40 years and over 2,000 performances of Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof. You finally hung up your talus. Do you miss Tevya? Um, Not really, because, you know, the last time I played um, Tevya was in 2010. That's not so long ago. Um, it, it's after that, uh, you know, okay, after that, I decided enough. I hang up my milk pail. Um, but uh, the, for instance, I'm going to be in Washington this weekend. There's a production of Fiddler on the Roof at the arena stage. And um, I'm going to see it with my family. And then there'll be a Q&A with me on stage afterwards. So um, if I'm not playing it, at least I can talk about it. We are talking to Theodore Bacal, folks, a living legend now in his 90s who has done it all. And speaking of doing it all, uh, you know, I'm just fascinated that you were in films like African Queen. You are really, you know, one of the last living links to that era of Hollywood. What was Bogey like? Do people still ask you about that? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Um, I, I, I was in, I was really in awe over the talent that that was there because we were sitting in, in the in the makeup room before we went on, on the set and he was mumbling the lines with a with a script woman and I said, Okay, where is all of that? Half an hour later we're on the set and there's a full fully blown full blown performance. And I never knew when it came together and how. And it was awesome. It was really great. And from then to now, Theodore, I think a lot of people would be interested to know that, uh, want to know, how how is your marriage going? I think you're still in the newlywed phase. Uh, been married, yeah. what, around two years to your beautiful wife, Amy. How's that going? Very well indeed. I love it. It's it's. You know, it is, it's phenomenal. I mean, who would have thought that you could get married at this late stage in life and um, love it, enjoy it? Good. It's fine. You know, Theo, we... I recommend it to anybody. <laughs> we don't let anybody of your stature go without giving us something to think about. I mean, you have experienced life for, for decades. You've had success. You're still going strong. What can we learn from you about life in general? What is the Theodore Bacal takeaway? What's the moral of your story? Be curious. Be curious. Look at life. Look at things around you. Uh, find out about them. Read, listen, sing if you can, uh, and if you can sing, don't sing. <laughs> um, but but just don't give up on on yourself. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on life. It, it it's there to be enjoyed. It's a gift. Don't squander it. You know, it's always so interesting to hear from people like Theodore Bickel because we look back and think, wow, he's a legend. But in his own mind, he worked his way up step by step, opportunity by opportunity. The man took many risks. He followed his heart. He followed what he believed in. And look what happened. He became a legend of the stage, the screen, and the music world. Folks, I encourage you to read his autobiography called Theo. He's just added, not his last chapter, we'll just call it his latest chapter. What a treat to visit with the legendary Theo Bickel.
Where did the last hour go? That's it for now, folks. But, you know, growing bolder doesn't stop here. In fact, it's really just the beginning. You can find hundreds more interviews just like the ones you've heard today with TV stars, movie stars, rock stars, sports stars, authors, business leaders, medical experts, wellness experts, financial experts, (laughs) travel experts. But here's my favorite, regular people who have just found their way to live in exciting lives. All of that is at growingbolder.com. And there's even more information on where to watch Growing Boulder television and how to subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine. At Growing Boulder, we're offering three products. They are hope, inspiration, and possibility, and we hope you are buying. Tell some friends about the most unique media company anywhere, and then ask yourself, are you Growing Boulder? Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Stay.